darkness falls high above New York City, adventure reaches new heights. New action. New villains. Gargoyles. Now, every Monday through Thursday, because one day just can't hold them. Today at 4.30 on WB22 Cable 10. The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie. A Gargoyles Podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles Podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogle Rider Variety Hour, The Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man related show that starred a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at Spidey Dude Radio and this show at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our vis- visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Spidey Dude Network, youtube.com slash Spidey Dude Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Spidey Dude Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Spidey Dude Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to Voices from the Eerie. My name is Greg Bashansky, and let me introduce my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. That would be me. Hello. Great to have you, Hello. Jen. And, Great to be back. And I would like to introduce back to the show, granted he's on most of the time, the co-creator and supervising producer of the first two seasons, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Glad to be back again. And we are very happy to welcome back to the show, the supervising producer of the first two seasons, joint credit, Mr. Frank Parr. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you back, Frank. We are about to begin our coverage of the second season. The 52-episode second season. All right, I think we can jump into our episode coverage. But 
while we do that, and Greg, I know you've gone into this a little bit before, but and Frank, we would definitely like to hear your perspective. What was it like transitioning from season one to season two? The insanity of of the whole of the whole uh, time and schedules was was uh, was quite different. Uh, what we had to have, what we had to work with. Uh, everything was just you know it's yeah I was I was just looking at leader of the pack this morning. You know I haven't I haven't looked at this for years, but you have memories coming back of putting these shows together and doing the designs and the storyboarding and everything was just a madhouse of trying to get, you know, to get all this stuff taken care of. I, you know, I, I have kind of an idea of what Greg had to go through on the writing end of it. Cause you know, the show holds up very well, even after all these years, all the shows do, uh, but just the sheer intensity of season two, you know, I, I, I often wonder, it's like, geez, you know, when I look at some of these old shows, it would have been so wonderful to have had that extra time to really, really make these shows shine a bit more than what they do. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, uh, it's always an adventure making anything <laughs> at all. Uh, but, uh, I think that uh, for season two, we were really, really, truly under the gut. I mean, just, uh, um, I, I know I've probably told the story a hundred times for uh, the Jen and Greg have heard it, but I, don't, I can't, you're going to have to remind me if I've already told it on the podcast, but, um, you know, basically season one, I think could legitimately be called a, uh, a home run, you know, for the studio and for uh, Buena Vista Television and everyone was just thrilled. It was the number one uh, um, boys, to- you know, the Kenner toys for all that we've had, you know, mixed uh, feelings about them. And Kenner toys were the number one boys toy that first season, first year. Um, and, the show, which was on once a week, um, was a big hit. And so they called us into a meeting and, uh, they said, Hey, we want to pick you up for a second season. And I was like, that's great. And they're like, we want 52 episodes for the second season because we want it to be a five day a week show, not a one day a week show. And I was like, yeah, that's not possible. <laughs> we can't do that. I said, you won't be happy. Uh, we won't. Because on top of that, they wanted all 52 episodes in the fall quarter. Um, all 52 episodes would have to appear between September and mid-December. Um, and I said, we'll never be able to get that many done uh, in time for you. Uh, it just, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, and their response to that was, um, well, let's just say they were disappointed, put it that way. Um, and which, and they're like, oh, well, all right, how many do you think you could do? And I said, well, uh, Gary Kreisel had picked us up, uh, just for six scripts, not to make six more episodes, but in the hopes that we get a pickup for a new season he was willing to take the risk on his budget to pay for six scripts for the second season. 
um, so that we'd have a slight head start if we did get a pickup. And I said, so we've got these six scripts, and they're not done, but they're in the works. So I said, obviously, we can do six. And we did 13 last season. Um, so I'm, I'm confident we could do 13 again. And I said, you know, if we really push, I think we can get 18 done by the, in the fall quarter. And this was, again, extremely disappointing to them. They wanted 52 and, and they, and I'm sitting here going 18 and they're, so I'm like, do you want the 18? And they're like, no, no, if we can't have 52, then, then just do the six. And then it was my turn to be disappointed because, uh, those, you know, an order of six, you know, I was hoping for another order of 13. Um, that was to me the sweet spot, but, uh, you know, if six was all we could get, six was all we could get. And so we proceeded on the basis that we'd be doing six more. And then about two weeks later, Buena Vista calls me up and says, Hey, you said you could do 13. And I'm like, yeah, that was two weeks ago. You cost me two weeks, but yeah, I, uh, you know, we did 13 last season, I think we can do 13 again. And um, then they called back two weeks after that and said, hey, you remember you said you could do 18. I'm like, that was a month ago. Time passes, it shortens you know, the window for us to produce these things. And they're like, you said you could do 18. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I think we can do 18. We'll do our best. And then two weeks after that, they called and said, we're picking you up for 52. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We already had this discussion. We cannot, there's no way we'll be able to do 52. I said, 18 is a challenge for us now because, you know, you called, you know, you wasted a month. Now it's, you've wasted six weeks. So, you know, and you're asking for 52. I said, it's just not going to be possible. And, uh, and they're like, well, we're ordering 52. We need to do 52 for the fall quarter. And then sort of quietly, they said, look, do as many as you can um, for the fall. And as long as we get the other, the rest of them, you know, in the winter quarter or something like that, it'll be okay. Um, and I was young and a new producer. And I believed them when they said it'll be okay, like that they'd be okay with that. And that was foolish. (laughs) (laughs) So we were both young and foolish. (laughs) Um, So we set out to do 52 uh, and, and Frank and I can talk about what we had to do in a second, but I want to just jump ahead to the end result. The end result was that we managed to do 31 in the fall quarter, which I thought was a stunning achievement. I mean, I thought 18 was going to be tough, and we actually got 31 done in the fall quarter, and they were furious with us, furious. Um, and I'm like, hey, we had this conversation. I told you we couldn't do uh, 52, and and uh, and you guys said as long as you know we got it in the, you know, in the next quarter, it would be okay. Which, by the way, we also didn't quite achieve. We got, I think. Uh, there were six in the spring quarter. Six of them didn't get done until the spring quarter. But uh, they just, you know, it was unforgivable that we didn't deliver them all. And they completely forgot that we'd ever told them we couldn't do 52. They completely forgot that they had told me it would be 
okay if we didn't do 52. Isn't that isn't that uh, interesting? How they always forget such trivial little details. They always forget those details, and we were to blame. It was all our fault. And so, on the one hand, you know, I was really proud of us from the standpoint of how many we had managed to do, and the overall not that everything was perfect, but the overall quality of all those episodes, both the ones that came in the fall and the ones that came later. Um. I thought was just an astounding achievement given that they gave us a 10 month sliding schedule to do 13 in the first season and a 10 month sliding schedule to do 52 in the second season minus six weeks. Um, and I just thought it was an incredible achievement and they were furious with us. Never forgave us. Um, it poisoned everything for them about the show. And they were also really mad that we kept, I mean, the, the second season was also the season where uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers hit huge on Fox. And so suddenly we were second place to Power Rangers week in, week out consistently. Um, that has always disturbed me a great deal, but, uh, but it's a fact, you know, I'd love to be able to say, Oh, you know, some weeks we beat them. Some weeks they beat us. No, well, they beat us week after week, day after day, every single time we were always number two, we were still a hit, you know, but we had gone from being a home run to a single or a double. And they were furious that we weren't beating power Rangers, which was just this phenomena. Um, and, uh, that we couldn't, ever top uh, in our second season. And so they, you know, they had endless amounts of disgust with us. I can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Greg shielded most of the crew from a lot of that. You know, he, he really did because, you know, he understood that uh, what the crew was doing and, you know, just, just the lengths that they were doing to put the quality into this show. And so he spared a lot of it, the, the, the grisly details of upper management. So that, that was a good thing that, that sometimes you have to do as a as producer, is put the welfare of the crew be, over. I want to be clear, too. That anger wasn't coming from our immediate bosses, from Jay Facuto or Bruce Cranston or Gary Kreisel. Um, those guys were always tremendously supportive of everything we did, um, or nearly everything. Um, this was coming at us sideways from Buena Vista, uh, home, uh, Buena Vista uh, which was the distribution arm for Disney. And in theory, because Disney was afraid to label the show as a Disney show, it, was, it wasn't Disney's gargoyles. Um, it is now, but it wasn't then. It was Buena Vista's gargoyles. Um, and so, for whatever reason, that just made those executives over at the distribution arm um, really, you know, again, aggressively angry at us. Um, and I did, I think, 
I don't think the crew, I mean, Frank, you had to know about it, but I don't think the crew as a whole. No, we, we kept a lot of that from them. It was, it was a tough enough, you know, getting these things out without, uh, adding a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the insanity from, from, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the distribution arm, the other other people that were angry. Uh, you try to keep people uh, away from that so they can focus on their jobs. You know, it wasn't really their job to know that stuff. You know, so so as far as they knew, everybody you know it was hard. Everybody was enjoying the show, and there's you know, you know, usual stress type things, but the morale amongst most of the crew was, was good. It would crack every now and again, but for the most part, I'd say it was good. <laughs> so. so now we can talk a little bit about uh, what we had to do then to make those 52. Um, and on my end of things, um, what that meant was uh, we had, you know, one story editor for season one, Michael Reeves, who was amazing, but there was no way he could, do 52 episodes in that short a period of time, less than 10 months. Um, and so we quadrupled the number of story editors we had. Um, we promoted Bryn Chandler Reeves, um, who was uh, Michael's wife at the time, um, and one of the writers of season one. We promoted her to story editor because she'd written some really incredible scripts for us. And then uh, we brought in Gary Sperling, who was on staff at uh, Disney. And he was the only staff story editor on the series because Michael, even from day one, had been a freelance story editor. Um, it was one of the ways we saved money on the budget. But um, Gary was already on staff, so we brought him on. And then I recruited uh, Carrie Bates, who had been my writing partner back in my DC Comics Captain Adam days, um, as the fourth story editor. And um, all of those people, Michael, uh, Bryn, Gary, uh, they, they wrote some of their episodes themselves, but as story editors usually do, they also, um, uh, you know, hired freelance writers to write some of their episodes. Uh, Carrie, on the other hand, uh, uh, only wrote all of his episodes himself. Um, he, uh, so he uh, was both a story editor and his, the sole writer on his story editing team. <laughs> but um, uh, they all did a, terrific job and what we would do is about I would say once a month or so we'd bring uh, again because only Gary was actually in the office um, I think Michael had an office back then we were at the academy building and I think Michael had an office but I don't think he came in all that often at least I don't recall him coming in that office do, do you Frank I not, um, not but, really. I mean, there's there's a lot. I, honestly, there's quite a, a lot that I I I feel like I've forgotten unless something jars my memory. It's it's so so right. far back for me. Uh, but anyway, once a month or so, we'd bring in uh, Carrie and Gary and Michael and Bryn, 
with Frank and I, and usually with Lydia Morano, who was another writer, but who had written enough of the episodes that we found her useful in the room. I don't know if she was there every time, but I definitely remember she was there a bunch of times. And we'd break the next set of episodes. I came up with pretty much all the springboards, which is just often just like, you know, let's do an episode set in Japan about Bushido. You know, I mean, I'm not saying they were like full story ideas. They were just notions. Um, and I would say, okay, who wants this one? And most of the time there'd be someone there who's like, yeah, I, I really want that one. And every once in a while, uh, no one would pick one. And I'm like, look, we got to do this one. So if no one volunteers, I'm going to assign it to somebody. And uh, so on, usually that got somebody to volunteer. And then on very rare occasions, um, I would uh, have to actually assign it to someone. Um, and then the, you know, six or seven of us would in the room, we just talk about each story and, and help each other break the stories. Um, not necessarily in tremendous detail, um, but just uh, get a basic, you know, verbal premise going and then the story editors would go off and do their thing. Now that was what we had to do on the, on the writing side of it from a standpoint of staffing. But the other thing we had to do was really, I became really aware that in order to generate 52 stories, we had to really expand the world of gargoyles. So that was why we also did the world tour in season two um, and really expanded, you know, there are more gargoyles alive out there in different locations. There are um, more myths and legends. We brought in a lot of different cultural um, ideas and aspects and, and all that um, felt very necessary to us in order to get uh 52 stories uh, going in a very short period of time. Um, and then on the production side, Frank, I mean, you, we went from Japan directing 13 out of 13 episodes in season one to again, sort of Japan got their episodes and then you directed some yourself like today's episode. Um, and then we hired, uh, Dennis Woodyard and Bob Klein to be directors and ultimately, uh, producers. And then even, uh, I feel like, uh, Butch Luchik, uh, even directed an episode. Yeah, he did. That was with him. Uh, it was, it was the big thing when we had to pull from, you know, we were very lucky to have, Japan, obviously, but we had to basically hire two two more complete crews, uh, and you know, assorted freelancers to get a lot of this stuff done. Fortunately, I was able to uh, uh, get a lot of people that had left Warner Brothers. They wanted to leave Warner Brothers, and and uh, contacted me, quite honestly. I didn't really have to do a lot of contacting on people. Uh, and a lot of the people from that I knew that I'd worked with on Batman, had, you know, had Ted Blackman, who was one of the key designers, had, had come on board as our character, 
I know there's a lot of characters, a background designer, uh, and, uh, you know, Triatomitis, Butch Lukic, some of the storyboard people, Don Cameron, uh, Doug Murphy. You know, I mean, it was a very envious crew that we were able to get on such a list, uh, honestly. And, uh, that was all, that was such a, a huge help in, in doing this because they were all very reliable and, uh, you know, you pretty much depend on them and on, on the work that they did, and, and uh, you know, without many revisions and such. But uh, we're very fortunate in that regard. But you just still uh, and <laughs> on the character Go design ahead. side, you know, all the original designs have been done in Japan with uh, with Frank then weighing in when he went to Japan. We pulled some of that back also. And Greg Guler, who had helped develop the show, yes. became one of our character designers. And Mike Bosberg, right? Was it is that right? Yeah, Mike. Yeah. yeah, we had Greg. Greg was uh, Greg Guler was the uh, in-house designer, so he had he had the lion's share. I brought Mike in because I like the you know I I had known Mike for a while, and his medieval. I brought him basically as our medieval expert because we were had a lot of flashbacks to medieval times and such. And, uh, he was, he was quite good at, at, at that. So, uh, he would freelance basically from home. And then Greg would, would handle, you know, pretty much the, the heavier loads of, of, you know, the massive amount of characters and, and other things that we had going on. On occasion, for some of the major characters, I would, throw in some stuff for them to go, you know, to, to help them out, at least give them a basis to work from, uh, just an idea that they would, you know, Greg would then, Greg or Mike would take and just run with it and, and do their thing as they usually do. So, uh, it was well oiled after a while. Uh, like I said, you know, it, it helps to have really good people, uh, when you do these productions, uh, it just takes a lot. You know, it, it, it lets you put out other fires that, you know, there's always fires, but, you know, you don't want too many at once. And you guys did a terrific job in the end. I love the second season, and we'll be going through that one by one, and we look forward to getting to all of those. But one of the things that transitioned from season one to season two, small thing, but Goliath's narration over the theme music. Right. So um, I can't remember whose idea that was. It might have been mine or it might have been Gary Kreisel's, but um, I know there was a discussion where we were like, um, okay, we've been away, uh, you know, uh, for a bit. Um, and maybe people need sort of a reminder of the origin of these guys. Um, and so I asked Gary Sperling to come up with the narration, which he did. Um, and I made minor tweaks to it, um, because Gary was new to the show and I just wanted to sound like Goliath a, a little more, uh, but very minor. It was basically Gary Sperling who came up with that narration. Um, and, uh, and again, the reason it was Gary, for example, as opposed to Michael Reeves is that, you know, Michael was freelance. So he was paid to do scripts, right? You know, he was paid to story edit scripts or write scripts. 
Um, so this sort of additional work, we didn't have a simple way to pay him for it. We would have had to negotiated a fee or something for it. Cause I would never ask him to work for free, do anything for free. Um, but, uh, Gary was on staff. So, you know, we had his time. So Gary, uh, wrote the narration, did a great job. And, and now of course it just feels so right. But at the time it was like, do we want this? Do we not want it? And, um, because we all liked just the Carl's music, just going over the main title and do we need to change the main title? And we wanted to put a few, you know, update the main title a little bit. There was a lot of footage from season one. We wanted to put a little bit of footage that we had from early episodes of season two in there. Um, but how much do we need to mess with it? Like, are we fixing something that wasn't broke? Um, but I think ultimately what it comes down to is Keith's voice is such a musical instrument in its own right that uh, now I feel like, well, of course it made sense to do it, you know? Um, and it's kind of lovely. Uh, but I, you know, it was a big open question. Is this the right thing to do back then? Well, I know that we, we you know, press back a little bit on it. Uh, but like you said, you know, Keith's, Keith's voice is so damn, uh, awesome. I mean, it, it is, yeah, I mean, he is, he is a singer too. I mean, he's, you know, Keith's amazing. Uh, and he made it work. You know, he just, he, he let his, you know, he, he let the narration flow with the music. Uh, that's why it works so beautifully. Uh, so, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I, I like things simple, but sometimes if you're forced to go beyond what you normally think, you can come up with something uh, that's better, I think. I think in season two, I look at it now and I was like, well, why was I fighting this so much? Uh, it, <laughs> it really is quite quite nice. Uh, but again, you know, as I said, young and Young and stupid producer. <laughs> Let's just say an experience. <laughs> well, the voiceover definitely has become very iconic. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that it was added to the, the thing. It just, it, it sets a tone. Totally. And it was written down on every website in the 90s. I remember every fan site had it. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. Yeah, but Frank, you mentioned Young and Stupid Producer, but let's talk about you as a director. What was the directing process for this episode like? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, because, you know, when I was directing this, I still had to kind of go through and, and work with the uh, the other guys as well, you know, with, with Dennis and with Bob, uh, and make sure that they had everything they needed and that the storyboard guys had everything that they needed. So I'd have the, the meetings with the guys, the directors, and we would, you know, we do the handout. Uh, uh, hopefully when we had the time, we would, you know, give them at least varied characters and maybe some rough sketches of some of the backgrounds and things to keep them going. And for me, it was like, when I do my own show, I mean, you know, it's the same thing. I have to, well, I need to have three more characters I have to do on this show, and I could kick something out fairly quick. 
So I've done a lot of that. And the same thing with backgrounds. Or, or I, we have lots and lots of reference, so we, we, we could, you know, borrow, steal, create, do everything we needed to make sure that the storyboard guys had the stuff they needed to tell the story properly and keep things hooked up. Uh, and that was the big thing. You know, we had a lot of experienced storyboard people and, uh, we would sit down and have a discussion about the script. Uh, the key images that we wanted to play in the script, you know, that we wanted to have rest, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you, you, I always, when I direct, I always like to have, you know, each act had to have one or two big scenes that would make a great illustration. And then you kind of worked around that. That's how I was kind of, that's how I always approach, approach stuff. Uh, and when you do that, then you're developing and you can, you can kick that out and then get it to your storyboard guys. You know, even if it's just really, really rough, they can take that and they can, that usually gives them enough to go on. And fortunately, we were doing all this in-house. So I was constantly having people run in and out of the office, uh, with questions and things. So yeah, control chaos and you're not control, but no. Uncontrolled Sometimes. chaos. Sometimes <laughs> it's, it's yeah, you know, trying to control chaos is a, is a, is a hard thing to do. Uh, but under the right conditions, you can come close at times. <laughs> the animation so. in this episode is just gorgeous. I love that first shot of the airplane taking off its coyote scales, Rikers Island, and the geography is correct. LaGuardia Airport is right next to. Records Island Penitentiary. Speaking of controlled chaos, I only I found that out for sure once, but <laughs> so there's a story there. Uh, it's not too much of a story. <laughs> so much about six years ago, I was working as a chauffeur. I had to pick someone up at LaGuardia Airport, and um, so much traffic, so much chaos. I wasn't able to make the exit, so I figured I would turn around at the next exit and. And sure enough, there was Rikers. And I know what story Greg is tempted to tell. If you really want to hear that, <laughs> check out Spectacular Radio, the episode competition with Greg Wiseman and Jennifer L. Anderson as guests. That's a plug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know you were thinking it, Greg. I know you were thinking it. <laughs> I, th- I think I, I think I was thinking it, too. I'll, I'll admit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> we love you, Greg. Just, just so you know. <laughs> um, just curious as to why we started with this episode. Why were we opening with the pack for, for this season? Uh, oh God, I'm not sure I remember, but uh, I mean, I do think that there was definitely an idea. We've got to reintroduce these concepts a bit, so you know, you get to see the gargoyles wake up from stone sleep again. Um, you know, you see them in the clock tower, you see Elisa come in and inform them, but you also, you know, as we talked about last episode, we had changed them or were uh, in the process of changing them from being purely reactive characters to proactive characters. The pack has not attacked the gargoyles at the beginning of this episode. They've escaped, but the gargoyles are determined to go and recapture these guys and, and put them away again before the pack goes after them. Now, the pack is planning a revenge thing, right? But the gargoyles don't know or even, frankly, care about that. 
they are being proactive heroes now in a way that they weren't for most of season one. Um, but it also allowed us in this to sort of remind the audience of various uh, things that we'd established in season one. So Lex's prior encounter with the pack, you know, really became an issue in this episode about him getting his priorities straight. Yes, he hates the pack and he wants them to be arrested and captured, etc. But obviously that's not more important than rescuing his buddy Brooklyn at the end when he's in danger. Um, but it also gave the opportunity for Brooklyn to sort of take note of the way Lex is behaving and um, mention that he gets it because he feels that way every time Demona shows up. Um, and you also get to see uh, a reference to him and Bronx and Lex. Every time we go out, we wind up capturing. Why does that keep happening to us? So we sort of lampshade that. And then, um, you know, you even get, you, you even get Broadway, Broadway with the gun. Yeah. Sing a gun in, in half because he hates guns from the episode where he shot Elisa. So you get all six of the gargoyles in there in action. You get some good lines from Hudson, actually. Some really great, uh, none of us are getting any younger, you know, kind of, uh, great Ed Asner stuff there. Uh, so we've made a real effort. It feels to me, I don't actually remember it, but it feels to me like we made a real effort <laughs> to, uh, um, reference a bunch of aspects of all these characters and, and so that we were reminding the audience of who they all were. And that was true for Xanatos as well. Like we've been gone for a while. You may not remember Xanatos so clearly. So there are a bunch of reveals in this. The first is of course, okay, there's this new member of the pack, Coyote. We've never seen him before. And wow, he's a pretty powerful guy. Uh, oh, he's wearing powered armor. Oh, he takes the mask off. Oh my God, it's Xanatos. Now, you know, we were using Jonathan as the voice of Coyote, but we futzed it. You know, we put this electronic, Butts on it, like the voice is coming through the speaker in his helmet. So you know, the I we thought, I think this thought was would have been conscious that some people would recognize that as Jonathan Futz, um, and some would some wouldn't know whose voice that was. Then the mask comes off, and it's Xanatos, and that's reveal number one. And then the second reveal, of course, is at the end. It's like. Bronx goes to town on Santos's face, and we reveal that, that was hey, terrifying. It's a <laughs> um, yeah, one of my favorite just, moments from the entire series is Bronx. I I, I was watching that just this just this morning, and I was going. That's pretty violent. <laughs> it's like really shaking its head and trying to rip his head off. I mean, it was, it was nasty. Uh, so yeah, I, I've forgotten that 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 bit, you know. But I, I knew he was a robot. I, I just remember the reveal. <laughs> so. It's a great reveal, and you know. Again, all props to Adrian Bello, our S&P executive, for, who could have said, this is too violent, but we're like, he's a robot. And he's like, yeah, but Bronx doesn't know he's a robot. I'm like, oh, Bronx knows. 
Bronx <laughs> knows he's a robot. If anyone uh, there knows, it's he Bronx. can smell the difference, you know. Uh, and uh, so then you get that revelation. But to me, the even bigger and more impressive revelation comes at the very end of the episode, which is when you find out why Xanatos did all this. It wasn't to get revenge on the gargoyles. Revenge, as they say, is a sucker's game. He doesn't give a damn about that. This was for love. It's because he, you know, we had this sort of hinted last season, discovered last season, that Fox was in love with Xanatos. Now we were revealing that Xanatos also was in love with Fox and that the whole reason he did all of this was to make Fox look good so he could get her out of jail. Um, And that was... Yeah, I mean, that's the big moment. You know, it's like, that was the icing. You're the cake. I love that line. Me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a beautiful line. It really is. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at that, but, you know, and I, I, was, I was looking at that, and it, it rests on the head of, of, of the robotic Xanatos. And I thought, oh, man, I missed an opportunity. I should have had the eye look over as he said that. <laughs> that would have been great. That really would have been great. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm saying is the, the one big regret that I have is when you have the time, all these little things, like like I said, you know, that I just would have went. You have time to really play with that stuff, and when you're kicking this stuff out with the uh, order, you know, and the, the schedule that we have, it's it's really hard to come up with all of those, those, those little things because you're working very spontaneously uh, to create these things from, you know, and, you know, working from the script and that and then bringing these characters alive. It just takes, you know, you, you miss the finesse is what it is. And that's what it is. You, you can do the show, but you lack the finesse. Uh, it's like, you know, when I'm in my discussions with the overseas studios, uh, you know, at, at Disney Japan, which is now answer. Uh, that's what they would said. You know, they said the big difference between really great animation and okay animation is the schedule with the schedule. You, with the schedule, you usually have an extra person there overseeing everything that just checks everything and is able to add just a little bit here and a little bit there, but that little bit here and there, that's what brings the characters to life. Uh, it's those little special moments. You know, it's like when we had, we did upgrade and, you know, I was like, I knew I wanted to play with that head a lot more. Greg gave me the opportunity for that in upgrade where, you know, we can, yeah, you know, they're bouncing. That head. Yeah. I mean, we, we bounced that head around like a dang soccer ball. It was aw- It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> And even, you know, and, it, even once we crested in a future episode, that image of the half robot, half Xanathos head, we kept using in Coyote, like on a screen on his chest over and over again. Yeah. We just loved that head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never see anything like that in American cartoon. And it's just, you know, it's just so twisted. That you know, I, I just it struck our personalities. I guess I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we 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 live for that kind of stuff. 
I would like to give you both some feedback, because this is an episode I remember my first reactions to it. You know, at the time, I was a teenager, I thought I was outsmarting the shows, and yeah, so when in. I fr- <laughs> wait, <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so I'm watching this, I see Coyote, and I'm thinking, okay, that's Xanatos in armor, just like the Steel Clan armor, then he takes off the mask, and I'm like, yeah, I thought so, but... I didn't realize I was being fooled because we were so programmed by other TV shows to think of villains as vengeful that when Coyote and Xanatos was talking about revenge, I didn't pick up on that. That was a big clue that this wasn't the guy. Then when Bronx jumps on him and starts chewing his face, a million thoughts went through my head. And again, I'm thinking of the cliches, and I'm thinking, are we going to get a villain hiding his disfigured face? Because those are a dime a dozen. Love you, Doctor Doom, but there's so many like you. So many like you. (laughs) And then he gets up and... hmm? Now there are a lot of Doctor Dooms out there. (laughs) Yeah. But Dr. Doom was more original when he was first created by Lee and Kirby. Oh, definitely then. I'm talking about <laughs> I don't the time. Want to make it. But, oh, by, by the time this came along, I mean. Yeah. Uh, but right, it de- definitely, we had been trained by cartoons at that time. I, I was older than Greg. Um, <laughs> but we had been trained that, that Greg, you know. Not this Greg. Yeah. <laughs> That that was the typical cartoon thing, you know, like this was the, I'm going to just be all for revenge and uh, they've made a fool of me. So I've got to go after them now kind of thing. And uh, so I was I, like, I was side eyeing this and going like, this seems like weird. And yeah, but that as soon as Bronx, like it starts chomping on his face, um, I'm like I I'm, I couldn't believe like they, are they gonna kill him off like that? There's no way that they'd, they'd allow that. And um, yeah, so I, there's that moment of confusion before you realize it's a robot, where your your jaw is just on the floor, like what is happening here? The show tricked me, and I loved it. For and that's it. what we wanted. I mean, that's that's oh yeah, we, we were wanted. we wanted we people to totally got lured in. Yeah. That's the kind of that's stuff that makes it's like what I said before. You try for those moments, those idyllic moments. Some of them stick, some of them don't. But that was one of those idyllic moments that we knew would leave an indelible image in your head when watching it. Uh, I mean, I didn't even know the term TV tropes back then, but. We were very aware, without having that vocabulary, we were very aware of what the tropes were and how we could use them to fool the audience. Um, I mean, we, were, we would talk about that stuff consciously. We'll, we'll lure the audience this way, and then we'll do this. Um, and then, you know, the hope is, is by the time the episode's over, the audience is surprised, but not surprised like, really, that's what you did? Never would have guessed that because it seems weird, you know, but instead they feel like, oh, of course, because Xanatos, of course, was not a guy who gave a damn about vengeance. It feels right when you actually hear him say that at the end of the episode, revenge is a sucker game, sucker's game. True love is so much harder to come by. Of course, that's Xanatos. That's our guy. But yeah, that was the idea that, you know, you'd believe as you were watching it, oh, yeah, he's the villain, so he wants revenge. Um, and 
you know, we couldn't get away with that every episode. You know, once we've done that, then, you know, we did an episode where he was after revenge. Again, people would go, wait, what? I thought he didn't care about revenge. I'm not buying this, you know. But we could do it this one time at the beginning of the second season. And then become a trope yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's that little moment that I love in the episode, Fox reading Jean-Paul Sartre. Hyena just asks, why do you read that stuff? And she responds with, because Nietzsche's too butch and Kafka reminds me of your little friends over there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was very much a a Michael Reedsian kind of line. I know Steve Perry wrote the episode, and maybe Steve wrote that line. I honestly don't know, um, because, you know, by the time I see it, Steve has gone through Michael. But I remember thinking, that is very Michael Reeves, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That just felt like mm, something Michael, very much Michael. Michael say. You know, uh, it, again, it, whether that was Steve writing it because he thought, this is something Michael will like, or whether Michael changed it to be that, I have no idea. Uh, but uh, but it just felt very Reevesian. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the choice in that, because Sartre was a existentialist who believed in both self-determination and Marxism, and I can see Fox going for two out of those three, but she doesn't strike me as a Marxist. Um, no, not particularly. <laughs> but, you know, know your enemy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, this is all, honestly, it, it, you know, I'm fairly well read, but uh, it, that's all beyond my uh, understanding. I'm a dope relative to Reeves. Uh, uh, it, you know, it, if it wasn't telling a story, then I kind of lost interest in it as a student. <laughs> so, um, uh, oh, he he told stories. So I, I was Michael. He told stories. I was funny enough. I actually got to use that line in real life once before the pandemic, and we all went home. At, when we were back at the office, I was uh, the computer system would go down for hours at a time, and I would have a book there and. This day I had John Paul Sartre's The Age of Reason, and one of my co-workers asked me, why are you reading that? And verbatim, I gave Fox's line. They did well, not they, get it. They set you up to say it. <laughs> no, they didn't. They, did not, they really didn't. <laughs> they really well, didn't. There was no cockroaches in the office to make that line work? Uh, there may have been. It was a really cheap office. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, but anyway, um, I just go on, Jim. I I really like Cree's uh, performance and her increasing uh, sense of attraction to Coyote, and then you know he's revealed as a robot. And I love her line. It's like <laughs> a robot. I still don't, honestly don't know how we were allowed to keep that one. I really <laughs> don't. It's <laughs> like even better, and, and clearly, I think in, when it was written. Like on the page, maybe it came across as like, uh, oh, yeah, even better, like a better fighter. It's a robot. You know, we don't have to, you know, kind of thing. But clearly the way she reads it is very sexual. <laughs> well, it's not just the way she reads it. It's it, the, the attitude we put on her face was made it a little, you know, oh, yeah. it took all doubts away. Yeah. 
we work long hours. Artists work long hours. It's a very lonely lives. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, hiding it's, it's, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine Shackle has seen her bring home quite a few freaks. Pumpkin, look, it's your old boyfriend's stab wound. <laughs> hey, stab, what are you doing here? Well, you called him. <laughs> uh, how long has it been, stab? About five years? Three, good behavior. <laughs> Come on in here. <laughs> Kelly, you remember stab wound, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> You can do an entire sitcom about well, that. And again, it, you know, one of the things is we did plan things ahead, but we tried to always leave ourselves open to things we discover along the way, like Fox being in Love is Antos, et cetera. But this was another one. The idea that Hyena would sort of uh, fall in love with Coyote, though even after she found out he was a robot, and Jackal being kind of really put off by that. <laughs> became this runner throughout the rest of the show and into the comic books even. Um, that was just a lot of fun. Um, and it's not like we planned it. It's just, Oh, this works. This is well, cool. She becomes, funny. she becomes mostly robots eventually too. Yeah. I mean, really yeah. twisted twins. <laughs> yeah. Really twisted. And then uh, at the parole board hearing, this is also just, I had totally forgotten about this, and then I heard it last night when I rewatched the episode, um, and I remembered. But the, the head of the parole board is Jim Cummings doing his best Orson Welles impersonation. Oh, yeah. And I remember yeah. at the recording session, and I had totally forgotten about this the last night. Um, you know, it, you know, it's a it's a one liner or two line part or something like that. So it's like, uh, okay, Jim's there playing bingo with the Australian accent. So, you know, when we did the casting for the episodes, like we don't need an actor just to do this two line. Who's going to do it? And Jim was obvious because he's doing an Australian accent for Dingo, so he can do this couple lines in an American accent, and it'll feel like a different character, right? But then he does Orson Welles, and Jamie and I are just cracking up in the booth, I mean, in the control room, <laughs> uh, because he's just doing Orson Welles. And then, you know, and what you don't hear, because, of course, we didn't put it in the show, is that after he grants her parole, he then talks about no, you know, no wine before it's time. Whatever, Orson Welles had a commercial. Yes. Sell no, commercial sell no wine before it's time. Days. Yeah. Yeah, we will sell no wine before it's time, you know. And so he does that, and then he does the sell no wine thing. And, and then the thing was, Jim's like, okay, I was kidding. I was kidding. I'll, I'll do it straight. We're like, no, 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 this is good. This works this time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we won't use the sell no wine piece, but we'll use the rest of it. It's all good. And I'd totally forgotten about that till last night. There is a bit in, during the uh, middle action sequence, which makes me wonder if that raises any eyebrows that Sanderson practices. Brooklyn punches Hyena right in the face. That is the that was no lady moment. And I've heard in the past that one of the reasons why so many superheroes have uh, don't have many female supervillains is because. Sooner or later, the hero has to punch the villain in the face, and it's 
harder to do that with a uh, when it's a woman on the receiving end. And I'm not advocating violence against women or against anyone. I'm just a little bit surprised that that made it in there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> like, Brooklyn beats the crap out of her through the whole episode. Like, <laughs> there, it must have come up, I guess, but I don't remember it coming up. Um, I, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things that I don't know. It wasn't. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's something they just they got through. I mean, looking at it now, I, I wouldn't do that, but I would just say, in Brooklyn's defense. He was, he's kind of a medieval perspective on fighting. You know, it was, it was, it was all, he's very brutal. Oh, awesome. uh, and Hyena kind of just, you know, <laughs> Hyena was trying to kill him. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's uh, different times. I don't know. It's art. And I just love Lexington throughout this entire episode from the beginning towards the end where he's got the particle beam rifle and um, he's just out for blood. He's uh, He is sm- so pissed off through this whole episode. Oh, yeah, out of I mean, all them- wanted to show it's easy to it's easy to sort of look at Lex and go, Oh, he's the cute little one. Um, and we're like, No, Lex is a badass. He's a warrior. Um, it's easy to forget because he is the smallest of them and He's into the technology and all this stuff. But he's you know, so darn cute. Right. But you can't forget. This Don't let a size fool you. He's yeah. he makes yeah. he makes up for it in viciousness when he when he fights. Mm-hmm. He, you know. Uh, and as you know, as future kids says, you know, he's he can be quite ruthless. The potential to be uh uh going potential there at Lex. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I lo- but I also love the animation. It's the colors, especially when that fire ignites on the ship. And Jen gave me a little bit of a lesson earlier on language when she translated the name of that ship. The it's the uh, Otoshiana Maru. And Otoshiana is uh, Japanese for uh, trap. <laughs> so <laughs> I must have known that once upon a time. <laughs> I totally well, I didn't know it, so it had to have been you. <laughs> Unless Steve and Michael did something, and we just, you know. But no, it's, uh, no, it wasn't. I love little time. twists like that. Again, again, that's yeah. one of the things I always liked about Gargoyle is that the writers spent so much time adding extra little twists in there. And that would would have been Steve or Michael, not me. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's the kind of stuff though, when you watch these things over and over again, that you eventually figure it out. It's, 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 it's kind of a shining moment for you. When you see that stuff, you know, the unexpected, you know, the depth to a lot of these things, you know, and Gargoyle had plenty of, you know, it had more depth than any of the shows I've worked with. Uh, and, and that's what makes it, that's why it's special after all these years. Anybody who's watched it is because of that, is because of that. So we tried to make our show, our episodes, I mean, um, really dense. I mean, we tried to stuff as much as we could manage 
into every single episode, you know, hints of stuff that was coming before payoffs of things that had come in previous episodes, um, little character moments, uh, anything and everything. We really consciously strove for, um, density, you know, uh, not dense in the sense of stupid, but dense in the sense of layered and, and, uh, multifaceted and, and rich with a lot of material. Um, and, you know, I think we achieved that. And, you know, the, the rule of thumb back then, the gen, the quote unquote conventional wisdom is the comedy repeats and drama doesn't, um, action shows don't repeat comedy repeats because you can always laugh, but, um, an action show, you know, it's all about, okay, once you know how it turns out, you don't want to see it again because you already know how it turns out, you know? And we felt that that didn't have to be true. A, because I think we put in a lot more comedy in Gargoyles than people give us credit for. I mean, people are always telling me what a dark show it is for Disney. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. I mean, it is, but... Um, it was also funny. That's not why you love. That's why not why you love the characters. You don't love the characters that are being serious. You love the characters when they're being light, when they're being right. fun, and when they're being real. But we also gave people reasons to rewatch it because they'd find stuff or notice stuff in a second viewing. You know, if you've watched the whole season and you rewatch it, like, oh my god, they planted the seed way back here, or stuff like that. You know, that there were always things. Um, that you could pick up on uh, by watching it a second time, watching it a third time, a fourth time. There's always stuff that you could find that you didn't find the first time you watched through it. And I would talk about that even back then. And people would say to me, yeah, yeah. Comedy repeats action. Doesn't. I mean, like it was a mantra that they all believed. I was, and I was, Go ahead. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I was like, I don't believe that has to be true. And, and I think the fact that we're talking about this show 25 years later kind of proves me right. I would always, uh, in, in my, in my production meetings, I was always, you know, Barbara would always, you know, we always argue for more time because we needed the more time because the comedy shows had more time than we did. They had an extra couple of weeks more than we did on the show. And they would go, well, well, it's just, you're doing drama. Drama doesn't require that. The comedy guys, they need that to work the stuff out and such. And I'm, I'm, I, was, I was always like, no, no, you don't understand. These shows are more layered. We have to set things up. The acting and everything is just, as if you know is is difficult the way that we're doing this because we we're treating this like a live action show it's not the general stuff you use superhero stuff that you see uh, that you would see at Hanna Barbera back at at Marvel Productions with GI Joe and that kind of stuff i mean it was very layered character stuff that we were building and that's you know and i was always having having the fights you know, for, for uh, giving our storyboard people more more time to do these because the shows were so layered and these things had to really be planned out to, to maximize the story. Uh, 
So, yeah, I mean, people had a lot of different ideas on it. Frankly, the fact that they let us do it at all without going back and doing super friend type scripts still amazes me. And that's, that's probably more due to Greg, <laughs> you know, in, in fighting to get that stuff. Because nobody, you know, yeah, it's, it's there and it's out. It's, you don't need all that extra stuff. Just, you know, they go in and they create punches. Everybody's okay at the end, you know, have a laugh, and that's it. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, you say and that's why, for it, and that's, um, and that's nice of you to say. Uh, but the truth is, is um, it wasn't so much that I had to fight for it, um, as that because I had been an executive, they foolishly trusted me. <laughs> whatever gets the job done <laughs> you know? I didn't remarkably I didn't have to fight a lot um, I really didn't it's that other shows at Walt Disney Television Animation at the time for various different reasons were in crisis for one reason or another and so they were keeping all these executives busy and we were, you know, seemingly a well-oiled um, machine. And so they kind of ignored us. And they're like, should we be paying? Well, Greg's on that show. And, you know, Greg knows what the job is. And so it'll be fine. You know? <laughs> it'll be fine. And then, you know, this is why down the road, when Jerry finally sort of took Frank and I to lunch, and said, this is really a story for another day, but, uh, but you know, sort of said, you know, I, and he was actually apologetic. He's like, guys, you guys have been doing a great job, and I really feel bad because I've not been paying attention to what's going on on the show. How's it going? And and we were in more or less the home stretch at that point, and we're like, oh, it's going good. He's like, so what kind of things did you do on the show? And, and we're like, oh, you know... Um, Fox and Santos got married and Fox is having a baby and, and, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't do that. Don't do that. We're like, what? He's like, no, no. I mean, you know, you, they're the villains. You can't have the villains raising a kid. That's horrible. And, and, but you can't take a kid away from their parents. So I, I just don't do the kid. It's okay if the villains get married, but don't do the kid. And <laughs> Frank and I looked at each other because, and I turned to Gary and I said, Gary, it's already done. Uh, this isn't something we're planning. This is something we've done. And there's this really long pause. And I'm watching Gary and I, it was like one of these moments when I'm like, I have telepathy. I know exactly what he's thinking. He's thinking, I can call a halt to this. I can put another show in crisis because I'm going to rip this apart and stop them from making this horrible mistake that they're planning. <laughs> and, or I can just let it go. And I, you could almost see the exhaustion roll over his face. And then he goes, okay, just don't dwell on it. And I'm like, and literally at that moment, I'm thinking, what does that mean? How do, don't dwell on it. Um, but Frank and I just looked at each other and said, yeah, yeah, we won't dwell on it. We won't dwell on it. <laughs> we got to do whatever we wanted. But I didn't, again, it wasn't like we fought for it. We'd done it already. It was too late. Um, 
We just no decided that we weren't going to do any diaper changing things. Right. <laughs> didn't dwell on it at all. No diaper. Changing. We didn't dwell on it. Didn't dwell on it. Although now that I think about it, that would have been an excellent opportunity for Lexington. <laughs> Before we begin to wrap up, uh, if we still have time, why don't we discuss the development of Coyote? Because I know that Car- I've seen pictures of the older development versions of him, and he was very different than how he turned up as on the show. I'm looking at this picture right now of this uh, robotic dog head. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the original Coyote in the development was like going to be the generic pilot of all their vehicles. By the way, the name of the vehicle that the pack fly in this was called the pack attack vehicle. That was the name of it because I, I think we thought Kenner was going to make a toy out of this too, which again, they didn't do. Um, but, um, but it had this corny name, the pack attack vehicle. Um, but back when we were originally developing the show, we thought the coyote head would just be their pilot, you know? Um, and then occasionally we'd stick it on a big robot body and it could, you know, punch things. But then, you know, as we developed season two, I don't remember how it came about exactly. I don't know if you do, Frank, but it was probably just a conversation between you, me and Michael, I would guess, because this was one of those first six scripts. So this was before, any, you know, before Carrie or Gary Sperling or, uh, well, Bryn might have been involved because she was a writer on season one. But I really think this was just probably the three of us just talking and saying, hey, what if we did this and what if we did that? But I really don't remember. I just, I mean, I don't remember. You know, I, it's, 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 it's interesting because I can remember little things, little bits and pieces like, you know, why don't we have them? He starts off like a guy, and then as we carry him through the series, he gets he gets more twisted and monstrous uh, right. as, we, yeah, as we continue through. Yeah, I don't know how he got from the development version of the character to the... I mean, I know that the reason we didn't include Coyote in season one is that we were like, uh, five's enough. We don't need a six. Um and then it's like, okay, we've got them in jail. Let's, and we're going to, in essence, upgrade Fox to a Xanatosian level. You know, she's not just going to be one of the pack anymore. She, we're going to pull her out of the pack. So five still seemed like a good number of villains for the pack. Um, so, you know, we brought Dingo back and we had Dingo uh, bust out. Wolf and Jackal, and then Coyote busts out uh, Fox and Hyena, um, or tries to bust out Fox and Hyena, but Fox won't come. Um, and uh, that gives us five again, and that seemed good. And then, um, so I know why we brought Coyote in, but the actual process of turning it into a, you know, a foe's Anatos is then revealed as a robot. He was always going to be a robot, but we sort of took this uh, route to it that we hadn't anticipated when we were originally developing the show. Well, you know, I think a lot of that was... I don't think I was there when you came up with your initial concept of Coyote in the the original development. Uh, 
that was before you were born. But I, I think he, once we had Jonathan Frakes and we had Xanatos and his character was cementing into who he became, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that just kind of got everybody's imagination going of what we could do with this for fun. You know, and uh, it just kind of progressed from there. So, as you said, you know, he started off, he's just kind of a pilot you get with this toy ship that Mattel was going to do whatever, or whoever was supposed to, he was in charge of it at the time, uh, the toys at the time. And he morphed into his own full-fledged character. Uh, like I said, we could have started him and just kept him a robot, just a mindless robot, but the robot was intelligent. Was, you know, and it, it it kept growing, and it was malevolent, malevolent. I guess is best. It, it was uh, like the the reverse. Like in the first season, we we have this big red uh, Steel Clan robot that we think is a robot, until we find out that it's actually a human. And this was like the reverse. We had the human yeah, who true. we uh, find out is a robot instead. So I, I like that juxtaposition. Me too. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those in gargoyles breaking the mold. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Any other no, final I'm, thoughts on this episode before we begin to wrap I'm, I'm up? I'm sure I'll think of something after we end this, but I can't <laughs> think of anything <laughs> right yet. So it always happens. We try so hard to hit everything. <laughs> All right. This episode will be posting on July. 15th is there anything you want to plug uh well i can uh by july 15th all of young justice uh phantoms will have dropped on hbo max so if you haven't seen it uh please go watch it um and by july 15th uh the first issue or two uh at least one maybe two issues of Young Justice Targets will be out from DC Comics, uh, available uh, both in print and uh, as e-comics. Um, and that's uh, written by me uh, with uh, pencils and inks by Christopher Jones and uh, colors by Jason Wright. And Chris and Jason did those great uh, YJ promotional posters, those seven promotional posters, Um so I uh, hope you pick up the comic. And then if you haven't seen it, uh, there's also Catwoman Hunted, which is available in by July will be available uh, both as a Blu-ray, DVD. Um, uh, you can purchase it electronically or it will also by that time be on HBO Max. It was really fun. That's what I got. Oh, nothing for me, guys. No, I got... You know, I'm, I'm doing some. There might be something I'm, I'm going to post, for, you know, a few weeks from now that I'm just having some fun playing with. But I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna say what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll promote you it know, on social media. <laughs> but uh, if it, you know, I'll, 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 I'll show it to you guys first. Awesome. Cool. And Jen, uh, what about you? Anything you want to plug? Uh, nope. Uh, just trying to get by. If you do want to go check out my Redbubble, maybe buy something, that's at heyassbutt.com. Hey, ass butt. <laughs> All right. 
I want to thank you all. I want to thank our listeners for following us into Season 2. And stick around. We have plenty of great stuff coming up. And keep listening. And join us next time for Metamorphosis. And don't forget to keep binging Gargoyles. Yes. Hashtag keep binging Gargoyles. On Disney+. Plus. On Disney+. Plus. Keep on binging Dis- it on Disney+. Plus. Revenge, as they say, is a sucker's game. Robots are nothing, Fox, my dear. I can build a dozen more like this one. True love is so much harder to come by.